Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we're back on Zoom land. How's everything going today? Actually, you're not, well, you're in the office. I am not. How's everything in your world today? You know, it's just been a little bit of a another hectic day, but it was mainly just really excited to see people at the office. Yes. Uh, I went running this morning and almost choked on the air. So, oh, but yeah, she's thick out there, isn't it? Yeah, it's working out. I mean, it's not bad in the morning. I mean, although 80 degrees is arguably pretty hot, at least that was the temperature it was when I went to exercise this morning and it was thick. The windows were full of do is what I call it. <laughs> but it's funny. You have to actually, it's kind of a funny story. When I was in Oklahoma the last time, a good friend of mine who I stayed with dropped me off at the airport in the morning and it was, you know, he had a bunch of condensate on his windows and, you know, go around in Canada. If you have anything on your windows, you crank the defrost, regardless if it's warm out or not. And that'll clear it up regardless. And he had said he'd never heard of that. So he was trying to wipe it and have his windows down and up and had air blasting all over the place. And I said, just turn the defrost on and it might get a little warm in here, but it'll clear it up and then you'll be good to go. And it was a little trick of the trade, but I had to do that this morning. So yeah, it's pretty humid. I must say. Yes, indeed. But <laughs> summer in Houston, right? It is. I don't mind it. It's nice. So anyway, let's get on to a good episode today. It's a topic that has been brought up and it's something that, you know, we don't typically deal with directly, although we do a lot of the planning and modeling around what we're going to talk about happens typically in the operator's office, but it's something that we need to be aware of in the drilling fluids world. And that today is Matt. What is it? Drum roll. Rock mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually pretty, I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic and it's something that I've had drilling engineers ask if it like if we look into it or if we study it or if we take courses on it and you know i think as time goes on us as drilling fluids hands it's important to know how to cut a sack of gel and whatever other products we're adding but having a better understanding of what happens subsurface i think is very important and so hopefully we can help educate some folks today some some of it may be 101 but for those who've never really dove into it hopefully it'll learn something so let's kick this thing off matt give give us a brief overview what are rock mechanics? So it's the mechanical behavior of rocks, which you're not supposed to use the, a word in a definition. So <laughs> just think about rocks are, you know, they're under different kinds of stresses and the stresses changes when we drill through them, when we frack into them. And so, you know, there's going to be behaviors in that that we can model whether it's under tension or compression or, or it just changed because we cut the rock away and now there's a hole where there wasn't, there's no longer rock. And so, you know, we can actually get information on the properties of these rocks and basically how they're likely to fail. And then that'll help us determine what mud weights we need to keep the hole open. It might tell us what equivalent pressure will actually break down and fail the rock. It may help us with wellbore instability where we know we need it's not just that we can keep the hole open, but we can keep things from caving in on us while we go through all that. And so, you know, rock mechanics, it's one of those, yeah, as a manager, you say, well, what do I have 
what do I care about this? I mean, these are certain things that are sort of happening right in, in your midst as far as well planning goes, certain things that happen on the rig, maybe because the model's not up to date, or perhaps we're trying to gather information to update the model. And so the modeling is typically called you know, creating a mechanical earth model, where you're basically gathering all that data and trying to figure out how a rock's going to deform and specifically when it's going to fail. But on the drilling side, we don't want the rock to fail. We want to keep it all together because if it fails, it's lost circulation or well work collapse or something. But think of this on the completion side in unconventionals, you're fracturing. You want the rock to fail, right? You want to, you want to fail as much as it can so you can propagate those fractures in the right direction as far as they'll go. So, you know, and, and that gets to be very complicated where I think that's the reason you have some drilling engineers ask the same question. Like, well, do you guys know anything about this? And I mean, the reason is it, it depends on who you're working with and that kind of thing. But, you know, some companies have whole subsurface teams with elaborate, you know, really heavy duty computer setups to run really elaborate 3D models. Other times it's no joke, an Excel spreadsheet doing the best you can. But you can meet some of these folks. And I, I always make jokes about subsurface people because like they tend to be really underappreciated and because they'll come and say, look, according to my model, you know, you can't drill this well with a mud weight above nine pounds. And a drilling engineer say, well, we've drilled every one of these with 10 pounds. I'm going to drill it with a 10.5. And then they drill it with a 10.5 and don't have any problems. And it's, well, that guy doesn't know anything. And <laughs> really what it is, is you've got to refine the model and, it could be there's too many precautions in a mechanical earth model. There could be some other things that need refined, but it's not that a model's worthless. It just needs updating. And so normally the subsurface person fe can feel like an outcast. And if you go <laughs> talk to them, they really appreciate you hearing what they have to say because sometimes their message isn't properly communicated to the drilling team. And so if you just go ask them, they'll come back and say, you know, oh, wow, actually, now that I understand your problems, let me update my model and let's do this a little different. So if there was one way I could recommend, you know, from a drilling department perspective, if we could bring those folks together, you know, that's one thing we can do as a service provider is, is make sure they're included in the conversation when we do have a problem or we do have a question. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think the more that we cross communicate amongst different departments and disciplines it helps advance. I mean, it helps, you know, just planning in general. That's one thing about the larger operators, which is cool. And, and I've had experience being in pre-planning meetings where reservoirs in there, completions is in there, geology, land. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle arguably is somewhat not necessary, but it's cool to hear it on the service side, a lot of people's inputs and just how many people actually are involved with, with drilling a well. And you know, I mean, at the end of the day too, when we're drilling on conventionals, a lot of it's very repetitious. And so it's you know, it maybe isn't quite required. And then of course you have the smaller companies where they have a handful of people that do it all, but there are, you know, there are situations where it does require a number of people. And the more communication there is across disciplines is, is super helpful. And it just helps educate everybody as to what's going on. Matt, why don't we define a, a few of the key terms? I think there's a lot of terms that get flown around or thrown around, sorry. And I think it would be good to at least have an understanding of the, the basic or the, the most used ones. Yeah, I mean, and this is an alphabet soup of Greek letters, right? The, the first thing you can do to, to scare somebody is use a bunch of Greek letters. And then you're like, oh, shoot, are we about to do some calculus? <laughs> yeah. And these folks are not shy with exhausting the alphabet. But 
I'm going to try and define, I think the two ways I want to describe these terms is one, just kind of get, think through them. And then two is, you know, where I can tell you where they're typically derived. So first, just to get big picture, you got to describe kind of stress and strain. And normally you have this, this model of on your x-axis, you have strain and on, on your y-axis, you have stress. And as they increase, you, you basically have this linear path. And if it was, let's, let's pretend it was steel, it would start to yield and kind of bend and then eventually would break. The thing about rocks is you start applying, you know, your strain increases, your stress increases at the same time, and then it just fails, right? Like we don't have that moment when rocks sort of goes bendy. Right. When yeah. it breaks, yeah. it breaks. And that's called the yield stress, but it's really like the ultimate stress or what's called the fracture stress. And so those are sort of kind of the key, those are kind of the beginning of the, the Greek alphabet soup. But then we, we, when we're talking about mechanical earth model, there's a few other, you know, values that are sort of derived from that you can think about. So like overburden stress. Now this is in PSI per foot, you probably get it from a, a density log, but it's the weight of the overlying formation, right? So we talked about overburden, how much rock is above the rock I'm interested in that it might bend or stretch in certain ways until it fails. And obviously more rock can change that behavior, right? So I would just try and draw the difference of like, let's say I'm really deep somewhere and it's really dense, hot rock, or let's flip it around. Let's go to deep water. Like my overburden is now much, much less. You know, when, I, when I'm below the rotary table at 15,000 feet, 10,000 of that might be water and water's a lot lighter. So I have a lower overburden stress, you know, net overburden stress on that rock and it's going to be weaker. That's, you know, kind of concept one, right? And then you know, another one is what pressure's in the rock. And we, we've talked about pore pressure, fracture gradient, plenty. You know, you can measure that with a probe. You can hopefully not find out by drilling through it and taking a kick. But, you know, sonic and resistivity logs can offer some of that interpretation. And a lot of this stuff is derived from logs. The frustrating thing is, it's like, okay, well, how do you get from point A to point B on like, you ran a sonic log, now how did we get pore pressure? Well, if you think about a sonic log, it's an acoustic signal. It's measuring more or less, you know, the, the density, right? So the, the void spaces. And then from there, you can make some interpretation as far as how much pressure is in situ. And, you know, a lot of these things sort of come with other models and other interpretation beyond our mechanical earth model. So it's kind of one of those, everybody's applying their models and then their models are making new models. And you can understand why this isn't necessarily perfect, but it can be helpful. And so, you know, fracture gradient, I think, ties right into that. When does the rock fail? If we know that at a certain point, that can be helpful for a mechanical earth model. It sort of helps me know my limits, right? No matter, no matter what the computer tells me, I know that my failure point is X. Yeah. And that not to cut you off, Matt, but that's really important for us when, when we're planning wells for operators. A lot of times that's an input that we focus in on to determine mud weight, you know? And, and so when we do, you know, for a lot of folks out there that, you know, hear, oh, you know, the folks in the office are running hydraulics. That's a key input for us to when we run the hydraulics, we need to know our fracture gradient. Cause if you're, whether it's your, your drilling, your ECDs, or, you know, you're, if you're running trip and pipe in and out or casing, you obviously don't want to go above your fracture gradient. So that, that's kind of how that, that ties into, and I think we'll talk about that further down the road, but I just wanted to highlight that real quick. Yes. And, you know, 
tying into that, trying to get your horizontal stress, your minimum horizontal strength. So think about this is from a leak off test, right? So I pump in fluid uh, and I actually see the way the fluid propagates a fracture through the rock. We've talked about this in the previous episode, the difference between a leak off test and an FIT. And so the thing is, I can get this exact information if I have, if I do a leak off test, but we don't do leak off tests very often. It's mostly in exploration work or areas where we really don't know exactly where we stand. And so I can use my FIT where I don't go up, where I don't actually break down the formation and say, well, I know it's this much and that should get me where I need to go, but it's not going to help put together a comprehensive mechanical earth model. And so you may need some other bits of information. And then, you know, kind of maximum horizontal stress. So this is, you know, we're talking about stress versus strain. There's all these different directions in which you apply stress, right? Think about a circle, right? So if I actually, if I have a wellbore in the horizontal, let's pretend it's in the horizontal direction. I'm looking at, I'm looking at a circle, like I'm looking at it on a piece of paper. I can actually, you know, push down on it. It's going to deform into an ellipse, right? Yeah. And so on one end, I have the maximum stress or the area where it's going to deform the most. And then the minimum stress where it's basically going to kind of stay in position, right? I think I have that right. The main point is thinking about that ellipse and how it's going to bend until ultimately a fracture happens. And so that kind of goes around to like stress orientation. Both of these, you kind of have to look at either, you know, calipers, which is interesting. So you run a caliper log. We know the well is never going to be a perfect circle, right? But a lot of that we attribute to variations in geology and that sort of thing. If you have even just like a forearm caliper, think about it. You can actually see that ellipse shape form, right? Yeah. And so it'll give you an idea, not only by like the relative distance, what the stress orientation is or which way it's deforming into that ellipse, along with which, you know, how big it gets, how big of a deformation you see. And so, you know, kind of with all that, you want to get down and, and you really want to understand the, what are called the elastic properties of the rock. And it sort of is what it sounds like. So how does the, you, you apply a force in one direction, how does the, the rock respond? And a lot of this stuff we get from core analysis. So it's from sonic logs and other, you know, interpretation, but these ones are kind of the, the heavy hitters, the ones you hear a lot, like Young's modulus. So it's a ratio of stress to strain. So let's say I take a cylinder of rock. You've probably seen those videos on YouTube. I take a cylinder of rock. I put it in one of those stress frames. They compress on it, right? And when they compress on it, obviously there's an, you know PSI or an amount of pressure that you can apply to it until it fails. But it's that resistance to compression, right? But then Poisson's ratio is the ratio of strain. And so Poisson's ratio is another commonly used term, but think about that cylinder. I go compress it and guess what? It's going to squeeze outwards a little bit, right? It like the mass has to go somewhere. So if I'm applying a pressure on top and it's deforming, the cylinder has to expand and get a bigger radius. Yeah. So it's that ratio of when I compress it, the, you know, when I, when I put it under compression, how much does it, how readily does it go outward and what length kind of, Hmm. if you will. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Makes sense. Taking it a step further, shear modulus. So a ratio of shear stress to shear strain where let's say I've got that cylinder, but I'm applying a pressure now or I'm, a force is applied parallel to it. And so now 
the cylinder is kind of sitting on the, the table and it doesn't, it's not going to tip over because it's under compression. And so it's going to have some resistance kind of going the other way, just based off of friction or more rock that it's attached to if we're actually down hole. So that's the, the shear modulus. And I, I mean, okay, that's, that's a lot of stuff, right? But what we're trying to think about is how can I model the way this stuff is going to move when I know it can deform a little bit, it can't deform a lot, and understand that window of all these forces. I took away some rock. I've got this overburden. Where are we going to go? And so we have to acquire this, this information to put into our models to try and figure out, you know, what's going to happen and, and what's a practical, for example, mud weight, directional trajectory, those kinds of things to make sure that our wellbore is not going to collapse and that we're kind of drilling in, in the correct direction. And a lot of this stuff going back to the lab. So you hear about uniaxial compressive strength or UCS. This is exactly what I just described where you put the cylinder of uh, the core sample in the table and you start pressing down on it and eventually it crushes and fails, right? So we call that UCS or the uniaxial compressive strength. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, that's something you can obviously measure, but you can actually provide strength on the outside. So you can compress this. Let's say you compress the cylinder, you put a, a sleeve around it, you apply some pressure. And now I'm trying to correct, you know, do the same thing, press down, press down, press down, see if it fails. But now I'm providing some other, you know, some confining stress. And I can do that at different confining stresses and see what level it fails. And I can actually create a linear equation where I can basically calculate a failure mode. And so that, that's a linear equation, which thank goodness, because it keeps us out of calculus, which is not my favorite class. Is that the old formula Y equals MX plus B? Yeah. I mean, I can handle that one, but once with all the Greek letters, I don't, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so you look at these lab tests, you relate them, them to your logs and it's another element. And when, when we're drilling the res reservoir, I always ask if it's an open hole completion, which we've talked about, I say, what's the UCS of the sand? And the reason mm -hmm. I want to know is that if it's really low, it means when you drill through it, that sand's going to be really soft and fall apart. And there are certain things, you know, even wash out and other things you need to be careful about when you find yourself in that position. So obviously this is a podcast and I didn't want to get into, you know, more circle and strain and shear and, you know, but there are some, there is plenty more material out there for how you can, you can basically, once you have information of how rock behaves in one direction, yeah. you can do some, some math and figure out how it's going to be, behave in all these other different directions, or at least model it. We know it's not perfect. Right. So you know, at that point, we've got all this information we've gathered. Some of it, maybe you were on the rig to see. Some of it, you got to hang out in the trailer because they were logging. Sometimes the logging folks were asking you a bunch of information to calibrate their logs. And they, you know, they're worried about filter cake interfering. But anyways, we have that whole al alphabet soup. We put it in a computer, although there are some pretty basic models you can put together too. And then you can go and you can do your well plan. You can figure out kind of where to go from there. Like you said, it's quite the, I guess, it's a lot to chew on if you're not familiar with it, but it's important to note. And I think for the drilling fluids folks, how do we tie this back to mud? I mean, can we kind of go through perhaps some topics that how that relates to our world and, and where we might use some of this information? Sure. It's obviously not. The reason we don't know this as well as we could is because it doesn't bother us every day, right? 
But if you think about leak off data, we, we talked about how that, that provides really important information about the rock. And so if you're ever actually doing a leak off test, try and see if they'll share the pressure curve with you. See where you're able to get things like, you know, Young's modulus and just there, there are, or, or at least ask one of us, and maybe we can help you, you know, just see what we're able to gather, you know, the, or not Young's modulus, I'm sorry, the, you know, horizontal stress, but you can interpret a lot of other things. Taking it a step further from there, well more strengthening, if you think about it, is the exact same alphabet soup with a few, not as many letters as a mechanical earth model. Because what you're doing is you're saying, okay, how can I induce a fracture without completely failing it? How wide would that fracture be so that I can stuff material in there? If you're thinking about, you know, a stress cage model. Mm. And so we're going to ask how much stress are we going to put on the rock? What's your maximum ECD? What's your hole size? But then we're going to ask you, you know, do you have Young's modulus? Do you have Poisson's ratio? Those are numbers we need. And the other interesting thing you'll see is because none of this is perfect, you'll see a model where it's like, what is the minimum you think it could be? And what is the maximum? So sometimes we'll even ask that. So we sort of have a range to work in because we know the number we have might not have hundred percent confidence. And then we'll do like a statistical interpretation of, okay, most likely you need this size of material to strengthen the wellbore. So that's the one where like, these specific models relate directly to things we try and do for drilling fluids applications to prevent losses. But then wellbore stability, we know it's like, all right, well, we know we need more mud weight. Well, we say that, but, you know, is it that their mechanical earth model says that they can't increase their mud weight? Is it that their model isn't up to date and perhaps they need more mud weight relative to what they think they need. And we could get with the subsurface people and say, Hey, we actually weighed it up by like a half a pound or people in the area have weighed our weight are drilling with higher mud weights than what you've seen in the past. So maybe you want to update your model with a higher mud weight and see what that does. And then, you know, the fact is that there are chemical factors that affect well stability. And we've talked about those in the past too. So you can actually make rock more brittle by dehydrating it. You can, you know, you can limit fluid invasion, which may improve, weaken it and enhance its separation by adding certain products, you know, to plug, you know, to plug micro fractures. So even though you say, oh, I do all this math on the physical mechanics of rocks, chemicals can alter the mechanical stability of a rock, you know, in good ways and, and bad ways. So, worth keeping in mind. And then, you know, the other thing, when we talked about geothermal drilling fluids, you can strengthen a wellbore, like in South Texas, they've done it where they actually cooled the wellbore with, you know, basically mud coolers so that they could actually strengthen the rock, like it it compressed back together. And they had a model indicating that would work. Well, we've seen with geothermal wells where because you're pumping all this cool fluid to cool the tools and you have, you know, maybe a three or 400 degree difference in temperature, the rocks actually shrink and mechanically fail, right? So another way that you could think about this well bore stability challenge where it affects the drilling fluid does in fact alter the mechanical earth model, if you will. So, and then the last one is more disinformational, but, you know, a lot of times these well trajectories are planned for a reason. Sometimes it's because their mechanical earth model says this is the right way to intersect this formation. Sometimes we can have the conversation that this may be the worst angle to intersect this formation. 
based upon rock stresses, but that can lead to more torque. It may not be the ideal trajectory for minimal torque and easy casing runs, and we may need to be able to help. We may be able to help with a lubricant, or we may recommend oil-based mud over water-based mud just for that very reason where the directional profile is more challenging, but it's that way for, you know, for good reason. And it could all tie back to the mechanical earth model. Mm. Crazy. No, that's very interesting, Matt. And, and I really appreciate you diving into the bit of the research and, and a little bit of the literature to, to give our listeners an understanding. It's been many years since I've looked into any of this stuff. And so it's a good refresher at the very least, and, you know, hopefully spark some interest and, and maybe folks out there will dive into something that interests them a little further. And so, you know, if you have any questions, certainly feel free to reach out to us. Mostly Matt, obviously, I didn't have much to add to today's topic. But again, Matt is certainly knowledgeable in the space. And if anyone out there has anything they'd like to add, or anything that we didn't touch on that you feel that would be good to highlight me perhaps in another episode, let us know. Matt, do you have any closing last words on rock mechanics? This has been thrilling. Don't be so sarcastic. <laughs> no, it's important though. I, I gotta, every once in a while I throw a jab, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think the important thing is you don't have to be an expert in this, but if you do understand where the information is coming from and what it, you know, how it can be relevant, you may have better conversations with the people that really do understand this. And if you can do that, it may get to the bottom of a problem where it may just be people aren't asking the right questions because they don't know this terminology. And so that's where it helps. I don't think any mud engineer should be a wellbore stability or rock mechanics expert, but I think there's opportunities to have better, more sophisticated conversations with people that are, and they don't know what we do, right? So the more we can, you know, bridge the gap, the better chance we have of solving a problem that maybe on our own, neither one of us could address. No, that's exactly. And, and for us, especially in drilling operations and in the mud world, you can't stop learning. You know, if you feel like you've mastered mud engineering, there's so much more to it. And so if you can continue to educate yourself and at least understand the fundamentals of things, like Matt said, you can have a good, somewhat sophisticated conversation. Or if you hear someone talking about it on location, perhaps you can chime in and add your perspective from a drilling fluids side of things. So anyway, Matt, thank you so much. Again, it's been a pleasure the listeners, please share the episode with someone who might find this interesting. And if you could leave a review as well, that'd be so much appreciated. With that said, everyone, keep calm and drill on. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.